You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. begin this morning, as we do with every book of the Bible, when we work our way through one from start to finish, providing us with a little bit of context as it pertains to the, this letter to the Colossian church. Uh, We'll get into in more detail these things contextually as we unpack this morning's passage, even more so as we work our way through the fullness of this letter itself. The book of Colossians, as many of you know, authored by the apostle Paul, Uh, With the help of uh, Timothy as his literary assistant, whom many believe was commissioned to write parts of the letter from Paul's dictation. Helps to explain why Timothy's included in the greeting, along with the use of we versus I in the earliest part of the letter. While, too, explaining the use of I versus we through most of the body of the letter. Most likely written around 62 AD, roughly 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, around the same time that Paul wrote Ephesians and Philemon. Most likely during his imprisonment in the city of Rome, described in part in the last couple chapters of the book of Acts. Written to the church in Colossae, a body of believers likely established during Paul's third missionary journey not by the Apostle Paul himself, but by a man named Epaphras. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 7. A man who had traveled to Ephesus during Paul's time there and had been converted under Paul's preaching of the gospel, only then to zealously take the good news back to his hometown of Colossae. Epaphras now, having returned to the Apostle Paul during his Roman imprisonment, chapter 4, verse 12 tells us, with word of the Colossian church being threatened by a dangerous teaching or teachings, the specific of which we'll get into as we work our way through the letter itself. And yet, Paul's letter to the Colossian church, we can go ahead and say, meant to encourage them to stay the course, similar to the book of Hebrews, in bringing before them the glory of the risen, exalted, ascended, preeminent Jesus No one said it better in my study of this book of the Bible and preparing for this series than the ESV Study Bible, which says, as one of the most thoroughly Christ-centered books in the Bible, Colossians finds its essential unity in the divine and exalted person of the preeminent Christ. The letter presents variations on this central theme with Christ celebrated as the object of the believer's faith, the image of the invisible God, the creator of all dominions, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the unifier and reconciler of all things, the savior through his sufferings on the cross, the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge, the triumphant victor over sin and Satan, the exalted Lord of life and glory, and the true pattern for the life of Christian faith. The ruling and reigning High King of Heaven, seated above all rule and authority and dominion and power, Lord of our hearts, Lord of our lives, Lord of our households, Lord of the church, Lord of the cosmos, the exalted and preeminent Jesus as uh, presented in the book of Colossians. As John Calvin once wrote, 
the epistle, meaning this letter written to the Colossian church, to express it in one word, distinguishes the true Christ from the fictitious one. That Paul means for us to see the true Christ, to, to behold the preeminent king and Lord over all. But more than that, Paul exhorts us in our beholding to turn from practices which betray our Christological creed and confession and to live lives that are consistent with who we understand, believe, and profess Jesus to be. Individually, communally, and evangelistically. If you pick up in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now, many of us are familiar with the Apostle Paul, the, the author of roughly half of the books that make up the New Testament, which is why it's perhaps surprising to some to learn that Paul was, was not one of the original 12 apostles. In fact, Paul was a man on a mission to ravage the church, the Bible tells us, as the 12 were seeking to spread the gospel and establish the church. In those days, known as Saul, a devout Pharisee, a persecutor of the church of God, a man not only having witnessed the martyrdom of Stephen, but to having commended it. Acts chapter eight, verses one through three tells us, and Saul approved of his execution, of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Happily disrupting family dinners and devotionals. Dragging Christ followers from their homes to the county jail. Ravaging the church. That is until he found himself in the, in, in the crosshairs of God's sovereign grace. In his famous encounter with the risen and ascended Jesus on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9 tells of that great story. A day that would forever change his life, a day that would forever change his destiny. The man whom we now know to be the Apostle Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Paul says. In other New Testament letters, Paul refers to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Here using the language not of servant, but of apostle. An apostleship that Paul declares that he didn't will himself, but rather was willed by God. As are each and every one of our lives and callings. This is the God, Paul says elsewhere, Ephesians 1, 11, who works all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will. Not just apostleship. All of us with a part to play in this great story of redemption in accordance with the will of God. It's no accident that you're here this morning. It's no accident what God has in front of you in terms of what he's calling you to, both this day and in the days to come. In Paul's case, commissioned by the risen Lord with apostolic authority in contrast to those seeking to lure away the Colossian church from the true gospel. A man who would go on to plant churches all over the, the Mediterranean landscape and author more New Testament books of the Bible than any other writer. It's a glorious testimony to God's grace. Paul knew that. 
Which is why he could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, it's one of the most glorious words in all the Bible, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I mean, think about this. Every time we see the name Paul in Scripture, it's a reminder of the sovereign grace of God in rescuing religiously lost sinners. John Stott, in his commentary on the life of Paul, he says, one can but magnify the grace of God that he should have had mercy on such a rabid bigot as Saul of Tarsus, and indeed on such proud, rebellious, and wayward creatures as ourselves. Before you ever leave the first word of the book of Colossians, you see the grace of God. Let the story of Saul of Tarsus sink, sink deep into your heart this morning as a testimony to the wonder of God's sovereign grace. And intertwined with Paul's story, the story of young Timothy, a man acquainted with the scriptures from childhood perhaps even raised in a home that by faith trusted in the promised Messiah. Whether Timothy had seen it or not with his own eyes, he undoubtedly would have heard of Paul's visit to his hometown of Lustra, where Paul was willing to face martyrdom for the sake of Christ. As the crowds tried to stone him to death in that very town. Who knows what kind of impact that might have had on Timothy and his family. As Timothy would go on to become like a son to Paul fellow soldier of Christ Jesus, a missionary and evangelist in his own right, trained by the Apostle Paul himself, one of the greatest stories of discipleship in all of the Bible. So intimately connected to Paul's life and ministry that Timothy is either mentioned or addressed in 10 of Paul's New Testament letters. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, verse 2, and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Colossae, it was, a, it was a city of economic importance located in the Roman province of Asia, now uh, western Turkey, situated roughly 10 miles from Laodicea, which we talked about last week, a little over 100 miles east of Ephesus. The city was a significant Jewish presence, though a predominantly Gentile population. A city with its commonplace worship of Greco-Roman gods and goddesses, including Artemis, Zeus, and Athena. Intermingling, too, the worship of Egyptian gods, in addition to the Greco-Roman gods, including Isis and Serapis. Having experienced the same great earthquake that Laodicea experienced, somewhere around the time of Paul's writing. Yet unlike Laodicea, unable to rebuild herself to the same kind of pro prominence that she once had. Many even forced to move to a neighboring town in the aftermath of the destruction. Here Paul writes to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The greeting itself, declaring the hope of the gospel. Before Paul ever even gets into the body of the letter. For one, he addresses the believers at Colossae as saints set apart as God's redeemed, having been, as he'll say in chapter one, verse 13, transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. 
Second, he addresses them as faithful brothers, not only highlighting their new identity within the household of faith as forever siblings adopted into God's forever family. We'll talk about that a lot in this letter, the implications for us there. But two, acknowledging their dedication and devotion, which he'll unpack in the the verses to come. And third, he addresses them as being in Christ, in union with Jesus, their lives hidden with Christ in God, chapter three, verse three. Union with Christ, making its own chapter in most systematic theology books. He goes on, grace to you, peace from God our Father. The Colossian saints, they knew something of the grace and peace of God, having been redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus, having experienced the peace of God and sinners reconciled. Grace and peace, not only having its place in our experience of the new birth, but too in an ongoing relationship with the Lord. As Paul speaks a word of blessing on this body of believers, grace to you, saints in Colossae, peace from God our Father. The sustaining grace and peace of God for the people of God on their pilgrimage to the city of God. Blessings flowing from the Father poured out upon his beloved children, He goes on and moving into the body of the letter. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Here Paul begins the body of his letter to the Colossian church. Not with prayers of petition, supplication, expressed need. Rather, declaring that his prayers for them are always filled with gratitude. You can only imagine that would have been an encouragement to them. They sat with this letter in front of them. A reminder for them and to us that, that Thanksgiving has its place in the life of a believer. Easy for us to forget that. That the Lord invites us to run to him not only with our expressed needs. Yes and amen to that. But too with our expressed gratitude. In Paul's case, gratitude for the church at Colossae, having heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. Gratitude which Paul directs, notice, not to the Colossians, but to God himself. As Paul understands that these things for which he's grateful are ultimately owing to the Lord. After all, it only makes sense to thank the giver for the gifts. Paul could have easily said, thank you, Colossian church, for your faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your love for all the saints. In this case, Paul acknowledges that supremely above all is God the giver, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here not only emphasizing, again, blessings flowing from the Father poured out upon his beloved children, the strength and grace to trust in Jesus and to love his beloved, the church, but two, emphasizing the lordship and sonship of Jesus, both of which Paul will continue to bring before us throughout this letter. We'll tease it out more in the weeks to come for sure. The Son of God who reveals the Father, chapter 1, verse 15. The Lord of all creation in whom all things hold together, chapter 1, verse 17. Sonship and Lordship. 
Paul here expressing his gratitude to God for the church in Colossae, having heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. Consider this. This this was no church firm in belief yet cold toward believers. Their love, not reserved for the easy to love or those who reciprocated it back, but for all the saints. Nor was this a church warm toward believers yet floundering in belief. Their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, worthy of Paul's expressed gratitude. Visible and vocal, this faith and love. In their expression, public evidences of a saving relationship with Jesus in bloom. Faith in Christ. Love for the saints. Faith and love, as Paul declares in verse 5, and I find this fascinating, motivated by what? By hope. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Right? It's not the only time that Paul talks about faith, hope, and love in a together way. We see it in other places in Scripture. And yet in this case, Paul describes hope as the fountain from which faith and love flow. Ongoing trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Love abounding for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Not the hope that you feel inside of you. Paul's not speaking here of, of a feeling of hope in our hearts. Though the Bible does in places speak of hope in that way. But rather, the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is a hope outside of us. This is real, objective, future promises of God that await the children of God. The things hoped for, the actual joys themselves that await. The hope to come for those who are in Christ. That too, significant and key to the gospel message. Which is why Paul goes on to say, at the end of verse 5, of this, meaning this hope laid up for you in heaven, of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This is a hope that can be heard because it's a hope that can be proclaimed. It's a message. It's the message, the word of the truth, the gospel that yes, the good news, the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's to the glories to come. The real, objective, future promises of God that await the children of God. It's part of the good news. The hope to come for those who are in Christ. A real, objective, future hope of which Paul speaks of elsewhere. You see it in places like Romans 8, verses 22 through 24. Notice the language here. For we know, Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, what hope? The feeling of hope? No, the hope of Adoption as sons, the hope of the redemption of our bodies. This is a hope outside of us to come. For in this hope, we were saved. Or as Paul says in his letter to Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What is this hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, Paul describes hope as, as a hope outside of us. It's real, it's objective, it's future promises that will come true in Jesus. All of this not to say that we don't experience feelings of hope within. In fact, the objective hope outside of us stirs up a hope within us. Again, the scriptures speak of, of this internal feeling of hope in, in that way too. And they do so in a connected way, bringing that outside of us hope together with that inside of us hope. We talked about this back on Easter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. All right, that's inside of us. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, here's the outside of us hope. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Or as Paul says, or excuse me, John, I should say, 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. A feeling sense of hope within as we sit with and steep in the hope laid up for us in heaven. That it was precisely because the Colossian believers were heavenly minded that they were of any earthly good. The hope laid up for them in heaven, the fountain from which flowed ongoing trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in Christ, and abounding love for all the saints. The gospel. Again, the good news, not only of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, but of his return, and with it, the real, objective, future promises of God that are ours in him. The word of the truth. Verse 6, Paul says, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The book of Acts, many of you know, tells the story of the gospel going forth from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The establishment of Jesus' church throughout the known world in a matter of just a few decades Paul here affirming these things and declaring to the Colossian church, indeed, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you. Unlike, and we'll get into this as we get into the letter, unlike the localized false teaching which was limited in power that was threatening the Colossian church. 
The gospel, Paul says, not limited in power, not localized, bearing fruit and increasing. That language, bearing fruit and increasing, hearkening back to the story of creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the command given to our first parents to be fruitful and multiply. Paul describing here to the Colossian church God's work of new creation. The fruit-bearing spread of the gospel, the good news of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The focus, notice, being not on the power of the messenger in producing outcomes, but on the power of the word. Similar to the language that Luke uses in the book of Acts, where he speaks several times of the word increasing, the word spreading, the word prevailing mightily. This morning's passage reminding us that it's the word that's powerful. The word of the truth, the gospel. As Paul says elsewhere, Romans chapter 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But the spread of the gospel doesn't rest on the wisdom of men. 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 5. Now, the spread of the gospel rests on the power of God. By the time of Paul's writing to the Colossian church, this is amazing. Just a few decades in the wake of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel having spread from Jerusalem into Asia Minor, into Italy, into Greece, likely even into Persia, into Egypt, and into North Africa. Paul here affirming that Epaphras didn't bring to Colossae a false or incomplete gospel, but rather the same gospel having increased throughout the known world. That they might be confident in the message that they had heard. It was the right one. As opposed to those seeking to delude them, to lead them astray. Paul here reminding them of that which they had heard and understood. The grace of God in truth. The good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which Paul will spend the remainder of this letter unpacking in its fullness. Proclaimed to them by Epaphras, a beloved fellow servant of the gospel, faithful minister of Christ, verse 7. Not an apostle, simply a faithful man carrying the gospel to a people who desperately needed it, just like you and me. Paul here highlighting his endorsement of Epaphras as a messenger of the gospel. This good news never to be abandoned. This grace of God in truth. No matter what the competing voices may whisper. Their hollow words. Their empty promises. With this morning's passage, we, we see the relationship between faith and practice. The interconnectedness of belief and behavior. Something that we'll see throughout Paul's letter to the Colossian church. As Paul is not simply out to change people's patterns of behavior. His aim is not behavior modification, ultimately. Rather, his aim is to get to the belief system underneath the behavior. Knowing that that's where true and lasting change finds its deepest roots. Belief in the true and lasting hope laid up for us in heaven, the fountain from which ongoing trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and a love abounding for the saints flow. 
But with that, notice that Paul refuses to treat the Christian life as if it's something that we could possibly live by simply mustering up enough belief. As I've said before, by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, so to speak. As he closes out this section of his letter to the Colossian church by declaring their love made known to him by Epaphras to be a love, what? In the spirit. These these words not only testifying to the glorious doctrine of the Trinity, as Paul speaks of all three persons of the Godhead in this morning's passage, but two, an acknowledgement of the work of the Spirit in the hearts of the saints. A reminder that any commendable love in our hearts is ultimately owing to the grace and strength that God supplies. Love in the Spirit, without whom there would be no love to celebrate. No love for which to give thanks to God. Love being a fruit of the Spirit. That we can have all the heavenly-minded perspective in the world, and yet the Spirit must move in grace and power. You see the the God-glorifying bookends with which Paul presents us this morning? He begins the body of this letter thanking not the Colossian church, for their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints, rather giving thanks to God for their faith and love as he understands that these things for which he's grateful are ultimately owing to the Lord. Here too, closing out this section of the letter with the acknowledgement that their commendable love is love in the spirit, but for the grace of God. By the grace and strength that God supplies, we're to be heavenly minded. The hope laid up for us in heaven, the fountain from which faith and love flow. I'm compelled to take us, as we close this morning, to 1 Peter 1.13. Where Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me bring just a couple more passages before us that speak of this hope laid up for us in heaven. Trusting that the Lord, by the grace and power that he supplies, will apply these truths to our hearts fanning into flame, ongoing trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and love abounding for all the saints. There's so many more than just a couple more passages, but I'll just give you two, two of my favorites. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, this experience This side of heaven is preparing for us, Paul says, an eternal weight of glory, a gravity beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen, the hope laid up for us in heaven, it's eternal. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Words that I pray that we all would be able to say as we reach the final chapters of our own lives. Paul says, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's give thanks to the Lord for the hope that awaits us, acknowledging our deep dependence on his grace and power. And let's watch and see out of that steeping in the hope laid up for us in heaven, what the Lord might do in fanning into flame deeper trust in Jesus and deeper love for his people. This book of the Bible, it's in part frustrating because it's, it's one of the few books that you don't get a clear indication of, of what the false teaching truly is. We'll get into this in the weeks to come. The furthest that most scholars will go is to say it's an intermingling of um, Judaistic veering from the gospel, similar to what you see in the book of Galatians, mixed in with a little bit of cultic paganism. And, and I'll tease that out as we move further into our study here. There's a part of me that really wants to know and have great clarity so that I can bring it before you and say, this is exactly what it was that they were facing. The truth of the matter is, it's probably not the same thing that most of us will experience in terms of what would veer us off the gospel path. But here's what I love. It's that Paul understands that whether he's crystal clear on that or not, the gospel is crystal clear. And we'll see that through our study of Colossians chomping at the bit to keep working through this book of the Bible. Again, coming back to that quote from the ESV study Bible that I mentioned before, this, this reminder that before we finish this up, which will be 10 weeks from now, this is a very short series, that we will have been brought face to face with Jesus Christ, the object of our faith, the image of the invisible God, the creator of all dominions, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the unifier and reconciler of all things, the savior through his sufferings on the cross, the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge, the triumphant victor over sin and Satan, the exalted Lord of life and glory and the true pattern for the life of Christian faith. Buckle your seatbelt. This is gonna be a fun ride. Centered on and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E. PTC.com.